Hello and welcome to Thinking Critically, a D&D discussion, a podcast where we deep dive single word concepts or ideas within the Dungeons and Dragons 5e framework. My name is Danilo and I like all kinds of games and the crunchy mechanics that make him tick. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram and I'd really appreciate a like or a follow. And today is a very special episode as for the first time I'm joined by not one but Two guests, Josh and Lewanika from the Tabletop Journeys podcast. Thank you ever so much, guys, for for both joining me today on this auspicious occasion. Josh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thanks. This is our pleasure, Donalo. Thanks so much for inviting us. Uh, yeah, I'm Josh from the Tabletop Journeys podcast. Uh, I'm from the Northeast United States, so uh, hopefully I'm not talking too fast here. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I was born in Boston. I uh, live a little bit uh, further north from that now, and uh, we're just absolutely stoked to be here today. We're, uh, we're really excited to be talking to you today. We love your podcast. Oh, thank you. And uh, yeah, and uh, the, the other half of uh, Tabletop Journeys, Lee Wanika. Yeah, would you mind t- telling us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Thanks again, Danilo. Uh, I'll repeat what Josh said. We love the podcast. and uh, Thank you. We uh, really enjoy the opportunity to speak to your audience as well. I myself am from upstate New York, very far away from New York City, but I've grown up mostly in New England, um, spent some time in the area where Josh is from. Uh, I am the other part of uh, Tabletop Journeys. And largely, I come from a comic book and writing background. I've been gaming for many, many years, and the opportunity to talk about gaming and get into detail is just something I absolutely love about the podcast realm. And uh, I, too, will attempt to uh, not speak too quickly, though I'm not often accused of that. (laughs) (laughs) Wicked. Thank you so much, guys. Um, All right. Let's get down to it. So today's topic is space. So I'm going to, I'll just open the floor. What does, what does that word mean to you within the Dungeons and Dragons framework? I'll let Josh go first because I know he's, (laughs) that tends to be the way we do. We like Josh to lead. (laughs) Well well volunteered. Yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Yeah, I appreciate that. So in thinking about today's topic uh, in kind of a Dungeons and Dragons, there were several kind of things that came to mind. Um, and the first one uh, that spoke to me tapped not just from my from my tabletop role-playing experience, but also from a little side experience that I did for several years where I was uh, doing a lot of uh, medieval-style sword fighting. Mm-hmm. Um, so where I'm going with that is that from a tactical point of view, uh, space is a very important commodity to manage when you are uh, squaring up one-on-one with, with somebody in a, in a kind of sparring capacity. Uh, you know, space is what allows you to, if you, if you can properly govern space between you and your opponent, uh, it is harder for them to hit you, which is always a benefit uh, when they are trying to do so. <laughs> um, and so that was kind of the first thing that came to me is that from a lot of uh, the feats, particularly like in a, in a fighter type capacity, a lot of them use that concept of space to either uh, allow them to move through space to get to their opponent faster and, and therefore be able to, to succeed in kind of that one-on-one uh, type thing that happens in a, in a combat situation, uh, but also allows them to, uh, to produce space uh, as, as bonus actions and things like that, you know, to go ahead and, and not let their opponent get into uh, uh, a critical range where they can, where they can be effective, but also to, uh, to allow them to close that space mm-hmm. uh, to, uh, uh, to go ahead and, and, and be most effective themselves. So 
that was kind of the first thing that came to mind on that one from a, like a tactical point of view. How does one manage space between between uh, a, a character and their objective? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this, I'm going to sound like a broken record to, to my listeners because <laughs> I, somehow I really hit gold with my opening gambit of what does that word mean to you? Because I think every podcast without fail, the guest has said something that I don't have on my notes. <laughs> <laughs> So I've got, I've got, as I said, like six or seven points around space and not one of them is to do with combat. So I'm, <laughs> I'm really looking forward to, to, to having yeah. that discussion in a bit. And uh, what about yourself, Lee Monika? Well, interestingly, and this happens a lot on our own podcast, my point is very close and inclusive of some of what Josh was talking about, but slightly divergent. Um, one mm-hmm. of the reasons why we work well together um, I thought about it, and the first thing that came to mind was environments and encounters and how we construct them. So as a DM, it was, how do you make the space in which your encounter is happening come alive? It was talking about, you know, having a combat that's more than four walls in a stone room with a gridded square, having sconces that protrude, having levels to your to your combat. So... There are pillars and things to hide behind, but also equipment and furniture with which can be manipulated or utilized in said combat. So it's a combination of that managing space and how do you occupy space and move to the appropriate space, but it's also taking your abilities and moving to the correct space to best utilize your individual character's abilities and allow Mm -hmm. your players to do that. I tend to DM more than I play. So I really try to make sure that every player has something in a created environment that they can utilize. Wasn't there a feat in third edition called throw anything or use anything that basically the the entire point of it was, you know, you're you're in a combat, you're 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 in a tavern, there's a table right there and there's a large ceramic jug um, and you can't quite get to your sword or it's on the other side of the room or anything. So now you can pick up that jug and basically use it as a club, you know, so that kind of that need to kind of fill out the space with making it alive. Um, mm. I remember that feat in particular uh, benefited from that a lot. It was in three point five. I don't remember the exact term. There is a version of it currently in five e. It's fairly recent. I don't know if it's homebrew or if it's UA. I just remember seeing it, but it's improvised weapon. I think is yep. is is, That's right. is yep. the new feat, uh, and that may be the title of the original one. But you're absolutely correct. That's the kind of thing that we notice. I ran a game live pre-COVID that we utilized a lot of maps. I spent a lot of energy and time buying them because I'm not a physical artist, so mm-hmm. I don't draw maps. But I will buy maps that match my vision for whatever situation I'm creating. And that was really cool. But what really made those encounters sing was when the game store I was at had a lot of extra equipment. Like they had a bed that fit on the map in the spot where the bed was pictured. So when you actually were placing minis on the map and then there was a bed and a dresser and a table, you actually saw how small a 20 by 20 room is Mm -hmm. and why uh, and, and how to utilize a combat. You know, a halfling ducking under a table had more merit when you were able to depict that. And it's very difficult theater of the mind to do that. So again, going back to, you know, where we start with space, it is important for DMs and storytellers to be very good at describing space and the items that take it up mm-hmm. and describing the viewpoint that the characters see for their senses. We have to remember we are the as DMs, we are the character senses. 
So we have to describe the senses and let them add the feeling. And what we fill our spaces with is critical to that process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I've, I I personally think theory of the mind, you know, it has its place, but it, I, I found it quickly lost a lot of its legs the the more complicated the fights become it's very easy just you know for say three characters versus three goblins you know you can almost pair them up at that point and it's quite simple at a low level but as soon as you start getting into that three-dimensional you've got archers up on the battlements you've got a pool of lava forming over here you've got you know some some hard difficult terrain over there if you've got any kind of tactical players trying to effectively communicate that through theater of the mind is exceptionally difficult i i yeah. it is for me at least it you're you're absolutely right i mean so lee wanika and i met doing live action role playing and the physicality of a live action role play versus a tabletop role playing game is i think one of the things that attracted me to it most of you know if i'm if i'm 20 feet away from you and i only have abilities that allow me to reach 10 feet it really it, it gives that really clear visual indication. Like I've got to figure out: am I am I going to get the hell out of dodge here, or am I actually going to try to try to close this gap and try to do what I need to do here? So it's it's why I think a lot of the games that I run now, I don't do a lot of theater of the mind either. Mm-hmm. I I do again you know maps with minis that are on a camera that people can see, or uh, try to get into like visual tabletops or or, or, or virtual tabletops. Yes, you know to try to really try to give a really great representation of what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, uh, I tend to, um, I have refocused my energies since COVID in reading, not necessarily whole books, but reading certain and very specific authors who are very good at visual description. Excerpts from Stephen King, excerpts from Tom Clancy are fantastic references for how to describe spaces and things. You can read a Tom Clancy novel and get almost a full chapter that's describing something before characters are even involved. <laughs> and, and kind of taking those cues, like what are the types of things he talks about? What are the types of smells that he refers to? What are the tactile senses that he tends to refer to? And then utilizing that in your descriptions and building this lexicon of shorthand to describe the areas in which you're going to have encounters. I'm not great with the technology piece of things. I am trying to learn and I have a good group of folks who understand that and are quite forgiving for my lack of skill with technical stuff um Mm. and the guys on the channel are helping me uh, come along a little bit better so i will tend to do a little more theater of the mind than the others but i Mm. try to make up for that with the description piece and then but when it does come down to the battle i do break out and do the best i can with what i've got Mm -hmm. in one fashion or another because i do think you need to have that battle where it's on a staircase and there's a balcony and there's a chandelier and there's, you know, like I said, sconces, ropes and drapes and all of those fantastic things and fire is raging and then there's an earthquake outside so it's rumbling and you can show the changes and I love combats that have all of those things going on. My own battle of Mustafar, if you will. (laughs) Yes, yeah, which sounds sick. I want to be in that (laughs) combat encounter. (laughs) Yeah, I think, I, I, to be fair, I probably, I maybe would have stuck with Theater of the Mind a little bit longer, but a couple of my players quite, you know, uh, in, in, in the details, they like, 
okay, but how far away is he? And how far away is that person? And can I go around this side and duck under here and do that kind of stuff? And it became more onerous on me to be like, ah, yeah, you're kind of undermining the purity of the combat by basically making stuff up. (laughs) Absolutely. I have a player just like that. He's a great player. He's also a very good friend. He's a DM also, so I play in his games, he plays in my games. And I would say for 20 years or more, I've been that player for him. Uh, and he is visiting that upon me with his rogue uh, <laughs> these days. You know, oh, I'm just going to go up and over. Or I'm, I'm going to use my ability to go along the wall. and So I'm going to go over this guy and not produce an opportunity of attack. I'm like, well, okay. And all right. <laughs> and so, uh, uh, Daniel, I know exactly what you're talking about. Players will test DMs, mm. and you do have to adapt how and what you do to the players you have at your table. And if you have those tactical players, you have to give them combats that have good tactics, and you have to give them mm-hmm. the ability to shine. If you have players who aren't quite there, you put it in just enough so it's there, and it's a factor, but then they only have to interact with what they want. But you got to give those tactical players something to play with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was a tabletop game that Lee Wanika and I played in... Oh, probably 15 years ago now anyway. And it was really kind of a, a, a watershed moment for me as a player where I learned you know, how these role-playing games can be run and what you can do. And honestly, it was, it was just that you know, if me as a player am having a conversation with Joe the NPC, you know, I'm not just saying, you know, it, it was one of those moments where it's like, not, I'm not just going to say, hey, I, I want to have this conversation with Joe the NPC. It's like, no, you and I, we're going to stand up. We're going to have this conversation face to face and I'm going to be Joe and you're going to be you and we're going to do this thing. Mm. We're actually going to, we're going to fill, we're going to transport ourselves to the space where these two people are having this conversation. And it really, it, it, it was totally like mind blowing to, to me at that time. Like I, you know, I, I didn't, I, I clearly didn't know anything <laughs> before that because having that experience was so like, it was transformative. Hmm. I, that, that DM was the same DM that I was referring to. And Josh and I will go I back. I figured to, it was. Yeah. Go, Josh and I will go back to that DM often because we gamed in his game together for many, many yeah. years and maintain a very strong, close friendship. But for me, that watershed moment was probably a year or two before that when I was playing some rogue or another and I wanted to hear a secret conversation was going on. And we were at a game store and so I said to the DM, I said, I want to hear what's going on. What do I need to roll? And the DM just turned to me and looked and he said, if you want to sneak up and hear the conversation, walk over there and hear the conversation. If they don't catch you, you heard the conversation. And then walked away and, and did whatever he was doing with some other players. And I was like, well, all right then. And, <laughs> and that literally crossing the space in that game store, nonchalantly looking like I was looking at magic cards or dice or whatever was nearby where that conversation was. And, but still having an ear for uh, what was going on and hearing the conversation was amazing. Uh, you know, that was freeing for me as a role player. Uh, it was after that that I decided to start playing live action games for that same reason. And I love bringing elements of that into the tabletop game and the tabletop realm mm-hmm. where uh, you can utilize that kind of thing and then do things like if there's minis on the table and there's a large scale combat like armies, your character cannot give an order to any character that is greater than 
two five-inch squares away from you because you cannot be heard over the sound of battle. Mm-hmm. Um, little things like that. Uh, little things that that he did, like saying, I want to shoot that guy. Is that in range? And he said, I'll tell you what, roll your dice and shoot. Then we'll measure the range. And if it's in range, we'll, we'll, we'll go from there. But you wouldn't know. You just see a target, mm-hmm. and you're going to try to hit it. Little things like that depicted on this massive table. It was two and a half, eight foot tables long and three, eight foot tables wide with uh, ramparts of a city and an undead army that filled the entire rest of the table coming towards the ramparts. And we were defending from the ramparts was Mm -hmm. amazing. Mm -hmm. Uh, It really set the stage for how I view large scale combat. And, And it makes it possible if you use minis. Theater of the Mind... You can't do that. You just no. cannot do that. My, my poor elven archer is never going to live down missing that shot, is he, Luanico? Oh, no. Uh, 20 years later, you're still bringing it up. I still curse his name. I still curse his name. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's, um, let's, let me leverage some of your, uh, your uh, live-action role-play experience. Uh, it's not, sure. not something that I've done before, but I think you opened this discussion around you know, the, the, the space you occupy in a fight. Mm-hmm. And I have been fortunate enough to have never been in a fight, medieval or otherwise. Um, <laughs> so I have very little understanding of what it's really like. So my, sure. <laughs> my, my question to you guys is, in terms of D&D, and let's stick with 5e's representation of a melee, how kind of accurate is that based on what you guys have done in the real world? Like that, that kind of five-foot combat zone that each character entertains i find it to be reasonably accurate in so much as attacks of opportunity like when somebody's leaving a combat if they're not focused on being defensive and and disengaging the fact that that leaves an opening for somebody who has the reaction to do so uh, i think that's exceptionally accurate um Mm -hmm. and yet simplified enough to make it a quick and easy game mechanic and that's a fine line that the wizards of the coast creators had to tread. How do we make things reasonably accurate yet simple enough? Um, because mm-hmm. many games that I have played and love are very much too granular. They really dig into those details, and they're much more accurate. But then again, it's not simple, and people hate learning those games, and they don't have fun playing those games. It becomes math and pencils and papers versus, mm-hmm. wow, this was cool. So I really think it's a perfect blend, and I think at least in so much as the space and what you can do within it, it's pretty accurate. It's good enough. It's solid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Josh has much more fighting capability uh, skill with, me- <laughs> with with medieval weapons than I do. So I- I'll let him go into the, that the more technical aspect of that. Yeah, so I'm going to agree with with half of what you said, and that is um, specifically the attacks of opportunity bit, where... You know, if I'm if I'm in a group of people and you're in a group of people and you decide to leave your group of people and come to my group of people to cause harm, you are going to have more people than you are targeting trying to hit you. Right. That's that's just the nature of the beast. If if uh, but as far as like the 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 five foot block, it's a lot tighter than that. It's just to kind of speak where the experience is coming from here. Um, so the the combat style that uh, that I played in 
did a lot of melee combat mm-hmm. where you know uh, your army of three hundred people and our army of three hundred people we're gonna we're gonna meet on a field and and we're gonna we're gonna fight by our rules until one of our sides no longer has people right because um, there are whole rules about you know how how I can take out an opponent and all that sort of thing. And so, you know, you'd be there in your 50 pounds of armor and your shield and your sword, and you will be shoulder to shoulder, hip to hip with the person next to you. Because keeping the line that tight is how you keep opponents from breaking your line and getting into your backfield where they can cause the most amount of damage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the, the five, the, the, I certainly did not have five feet to myself in that kind of a situation because spaces in that line are 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 a weakness they are you know um now i'm not going to fault D too much for that because you know they have to they have to pick a number and they, you know the, that five feet is as is as close a representation i think as uh as as makes sense i mean given the size of the minis and, and mm-hmm. everything like that you know but uh it's it's certainly in if if i can if i can put air quotes around real life um it's a lot more compact than that okay um you know so. Yeah, I would think that more like real life to Josh's uh, comment is probably closer to two and a half feet. Yep, I think that's about right. But that's that's immeasurably difficult for the maths, which is why I think yep. they ended up settling on five. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it's easier. Five feet, 40 feet, I count X number of squares, I'm good to go. Yep. Uh, yeah. Movement becomes easier. I think it just makes the game yeah. mechanically easier to play, easier to learn, much more fun. Oh, sure. Um, and at a certain point, accuracy has to go away, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. And, like, I don't really have a base on my feet either. Like, I, so you can be a lot tighter when you're in person than, than a mini can be on the board. So, mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's certainly, like, again, this is, this is not to go ahead and throw shade at, at Dungeons & Dragons. Like, they, it's as close approximation as they can, as they can do, and that's, that's just fine. And I know we're talking about space, and so just to kind of bring that back in, too, boy, when you are in a line... And you are as you are packed in like sardines in your line, and you've got six lines behind you, and they are as up close behind you as they can possibly be. So you've got you know a hundred people that are just moving as this blob. Mm. Personal space does not exist. <laughs> it really doesn't. I mean, it's like you can see the eyes of the person next to you, and and you can. It, it is incredibly loud for for how packed in it is, and how and how tight you are. To hear anything over that amount of, of sound and everything, uh, you you are yelling at people that are five feet away from you, and so that is very much accurate. Where um, you know you 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 can't get a message thirty feet across the field, like that's just that's just not going to happen. It's like you you start to understand why you know things like signal core and stuff like that exist is because you know if I'm if I'm yelling at you and you can only hear me from twenty feet away. You know, for God's sakes, I hope I don't have to go ahead and get a message to you 200 feet away yeah. because there's that's just no way that that's going to happen, and there's no way again that I can run fast enough to go ahead and get you get you that message. You know that kind of thing too. Mm. So, you know, in that sort of a situation, and you know, again, I I, I say real life in air quotes because it's not it's not really real, <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> but it's also you know space becomes a very a very real commodity in that where you know if you're if you're trying to burst through a rampart. And there are people coming up behind you, and if you're getting squished in there, and if you can't maneuver, if you can't move your arms, if you can't move your shield or anything like that, uh, you're going to have a real bad time. Yeah. So I have two real-world examples of just what you're talking about there. One is from my time in the United States military, where I trained as a combat engineer, specifically. And 
what happens in a combat situation is in a training exercise where there was live fire. It was structured so it went well overhead. Nobody was in any danger of that. But there were timed explosions at certain places. And we did a lot of planning. We had like a little sand table, minis basically, showing where we were supposed to be, time markers for when we were allowed to be at certain places. And constantly you had to know what time things were happening because you could be in a dangerous situation if you were next to an explosion spot when it was supposed to go off. And I can tell you that sound is crazy under those Mm. circumstances. It was a night mission, so it was dark. You couldn't see very well. You know, shout out to any character type that has dark vision. Uh, And and you couldn't see very well. Uh, It was actually hard and disorienting once you got done rolling around and doing different things that you were required to do to kind of get your bearings and figure out where you were. And a couple of those explosions go off a little closer than you're supposed to be, and then you end up with uh, 40, 40 years later with significant hearing loss, uh, mm. like I have. You know, so it's kind of, it, it is definitely something where I think the game lends itself to that to some extent, but doesn't quite get it 100%, not that it needs to. Mm-hmm. And the second example is, if you've ever, I've been to a pretty some pretty loud, wild rock concerts and been pushed up against the stage with the crush of the crowd, when you're that tight with that many people, you don't hear a lot what's going around you, and it is very easy to uh, lose your way and lose your breath if you are not protecting yourself well. So definitely mm-hmm. space becomes a premium, and I try to bring those kinds of thought processes to my encounter construction and the games that I, that I run, and I try to keep that in mind when I'm playing my characters as well. Mm-hmm. I think it definitely adds value to you as a DM to consider those factors just because it ties into what you were saying earlier on about having interesting dynamic spaces to fight in talking about earlier on the you know how realism or or how realistic the fighting mechanics are obviously wizards are bound by the same kind of what is it like the resource priority triangle right you've got three competing desires of a of a project and one of those is realism and of course you can't you can't hit the, the point of the triangle in all three resources something's got to give at at some point and uh yeah you know that's to be expected that's just that's just life you can't (laughs) you can't have absolutely everything it is still a game yeah Yeah, for sure yeah (laughs) yeah what was it that somebody once said you can have it fast you can have it cheap or you can have it good yeah and you've got to prioritize which of those three you're going to do yeah precisely that's essentially the the needle that is being threaded by uh any role-playing game um, Correct. And depending on what a table is looking for, a select group of players or DMs are looking for, they might just pick a different game if they're in the mood for, I want the real realism today. And maybe that's a great one shot, but they come back to D&D for their bread and butter. Or mm-hmm. maybe they want some other element to be the best part. So they'll pick a game that really doubles down on that for that moment because that's what they're feeling at that moment. And I'm all about that. I played D&D consistently at the same time I was LARPing, but I was largely in the two games for two entirely different reasons. Uh, You know, I got different things from each game and it didn't diminish any one of the games, even though it didn't do that other thing particularly well. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you guys for sharing your varied and extensive uh, experiences there one uh, example to toot my own horn if i may for a moment um of of a, a an interesting use of space is my players are currently working their way through a kobold dungeon and again i'm going to sound like a broken record but 
I one thing I really wanted to take into consideration with the design of this dungeon was space. So kobolds are small and crafty, so all their tunnels are small and you know or warrenous. So I really wanted to highlight that claustrophobic feel for the players. So every tunnel they're they're crawling through, I'm saying, okay, well you've got to go on your hands and knees and go prone and go half speed and it's dark. So and and there's only room for one of you to go through. You have to you have to form a line, essentially. So they 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 went through the first tunnel. Kind of nothing happens. There was some foreshadowing about some murder holes. Okay, fine. Nothing happens. It seems fine. Fair enough. As they go through the second tunnel into the second room, there's combat waiting for them on the other side for various reasons. But they eventually learnt from their mistakes. But there was quite a bit of a Laurel and Hardy kind of like back pile of they all just you know went into the back of each other into this tunnel and the people at the back are like what why have we stopped what's going on the people at the front are getting just like bombarded and can't respond because they're just getting hammered with and they're like everyone's like keep go push into the room push into the room no i can't see into the room ah uh so that that worked quite well they learned very quickly going into the next room it's like right you're gonna teleport you're gonna misty step in uh you're gonna trip one over and push yourself through to the next side and and that kind of stuff but that was yeah that that that's that was the the dynamic combat for this dungeon it is the claustrophobic like okay someone's got to be the spearhead <laughs> who who's pulled the short straw this time to poke their head out of there <laughs> I, I love that like i think it when i think of action movies or action horror I think about the elements of aliens where some of the scariest parts are when they're in the tunnels or, or, or like, you know, this machinery factory becomes much tighter when they're around mm. the chitinous walls that have been formed by the aliens. Like, it gets scarier as the space constricts. And even if you don't have a big scare, the tension gets ratcheted up. The tighter it gets, the darker it gets, the harder it is for people to hear. And then when the line gets stopped, oh, man. And the people in the back, like, oh, it's awful. And it makes choices that people made when you were forming the campaign so much better. Like, I'm going to be a frontline fighter. Well, you're going to go first. But you're a Goliath. You don't fit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, right. It's not a good idea to have you first. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. um, Exactly. Yeah. You know, and, and really doubling down on that. Oh, that's that that's the kind of game I, I want to play in <laughs> because I can have fun with that. I love when, like... When you have that kind of dynamicism, if saying the word correctly, that's what I really enjoy. I love bringing out those elements and how to utilize your various features to make use of that or what have you. Being a halfling in that kind of game, mm -hmm. best thing you could do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> that's going to seem like a hindsight is twenty twenty to my players, of which there is a Goliath, of which there is a Warforged, and of which there is a Tortle. <laughs> so out of six, three of them are like, Chompy Giants. boys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they were yeah. pretty much bookended with people that are just like scraping along the tunnel. And they'd be like, oh, can I squeeze? Can I like go between his legs? And I'm like, man, nah. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> unless you want to get really close, like, yeah. like close, <laughs> then uh, You don't want to be on the business end of the business, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> 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 yeah yeah precisely so that that was uh that was quite good but you know i've also done especially in the earlier levels the as you said earlier on the four stone walls sometimes it it calls for it and sometimes that's just you know laziness on my part or the combat is 
part of the intention of that combat is to be mundane in a way it's to it's right. to be the, the the intake of air before the the mustafar fight right not everything can be extraordinary right right you've got to have you got to have some things that are mundane to make the extraordinary seem better exactly yeah i pride myself in the games that i'm currently running that there are some combats i don't set up there are some combats that the players through their own actions and choices set up. So they're going to set up the environment that works best for them. And sometimes that relies on less dynamicism. And it's just because we're going to catch them in the, in the city square. So there might be a fountain and then they're going to take on the bad guys in the city square where their mobility is to their advantage and the disadvantage of their enemies, mm-hmm. giving them the tactical advantage because they planned it versus they happened into a plan or a plot of the bad guys. So that advantage swing is very cool to play out. So sometimes I'll have some of those mundane adventures. And then sometimes I do it for theme. I had a section of my current campaign that was an old school dungeon crawl where they went Mm -hmm. room by room. Most of the rooms were four rooms, one interesting feature, a couple red herrings, and one actual clue in most of the rooms. And they kind of went through it, you know, each room. But I highlighted a couple spaces that were very dynamic or had a lot of other things going on. But the big fight in that was, by design, a 40 by 60 foot room with three units of bad guys. And the heroes walked in at an inopportune moment and the scrum began, you know, and (laughs) and there was something very relieving and cool about that. Everybody thought that was neat. And when the bad guy decided to run away and they wanted to chase... Then I got back to kind of my bread and butter where I had a staircase. It was a five-foot hall, and I had beasts that could walk on the ground and on the ceiling. So their pack tactics effectively blocked the good guys from catching the bad guy who was escaping. Mm -hmm. And and then they're like, man, I can't get through that because they're three deep, six total. Uh, We're not getting through. The bad guy's getting away. And, Mm. (laughs) And that was kind of cool where they got what they wanted, with it, and they got that cool open slate, but then had to deal with something a lot more challenging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I imagine that would have been frustrating for the player characters to you know, be so close to catching the, uh, the bad guy, and then, ah, he, he gets away in the end. That's, that's great. It just increases that, the antagonistic nature. <laughs> <laughs> I love recurring villains, and I always give my player characters the opportunity to be able to get them. But at the same time, you can't have a recurring villain if they don't get away. <laughs> so so uh, you have to walk that fine line between, okay, I have a plan for the bad guy to get away and allowing for the fact that the player characters could, in fact, make the choice to sacrifice whatever they had to. They could have. A couple player characters could have died doing it, but they could have gotten mm-hmm. to the bad guy. They made the choice not to do that. And I get that, but I never want to create a situation where they can't get the bad guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah yeah i mean that's a pretty tough call to make so i don't blame them for you know putting the value of their lives or to two of their party's lives higher than capturing in this moment there's always the we'll get them next time yep. uh, <laughs> energy the optimism of players <laughs> yeah yeah uh in fact that uh, uh, continuing on our thread of kind of combat the, the space that combat happens in and that same strategic player of mine who always, always wants to know where everything is again maybe unsurprisingly has built himself around these he's a bugbear so he's got long arms a 10 foot reach uh, uses a reskinned pole arm 
so I think he effectively has like a 15 foot reach with yeah. his melee weapons and also has I can't remember which feat it is but the one that basically gives you an attack of opportunity when an enemy enters your melee range it might be sentinel or polar master or one of those ones so basically he's always like has he moved uh within 15 15 foot of me i'm like yeah all right take your take your hit and then uh yeah and that also reduces the creature's speed to zero yep so that that's uh, like way more powerful than i ever thought it would be on paper because the amount of kind of melee combatants he's shut down for a turn because they're just like, oh, I'm, I, I, God damn it, I just can't get close enough. Because yeah. he's just gone, dink, uh, no, you're going to stay there. So so I love that selection of feats, and I actually use them on a Warforged myself in the game that mm-hmm. I play in, because it is just that powerful, and it is that evocative and cool. But as a DM, if you have players who have that mindset and have those feats, you have to plan for that. You have to expect mm-hmm. it, and then you kind of have to say, do I have bad guys that are aware of this Yes. Because if your characters are doing it, in order to have that selection of feet, they usually have to be somewhere in the four to six range in order to have everything in place to be able to do all that. And if they get to sixth level, they're pretty famous. So do the bad guys have knowledge of their tactics before the combat? If yes, then plan for it. They've got Mm -hmm. to have more ranged attack. They've got to have more archers. They've got to have traps and other things to sway his attention or they run formations you know where the first two guys they're gonna get help but he can only use sentinel the number of times per reactions he has so it's it's not one guy rushing and then the next time another guy rushing it's three guys rushing at once let him pick you know (laughs) And, and then you make one of them really cool really special but also harder to hit so he's got to decide do I definitely stop one or two, one or, one or the other one, or do I take a risk and maybe not stop any of them to try to stop the real big one? Ooh. Now that that yeah. I, I better start taking some notes because <laughs> <laughs> because when you make your players, especially your tactically minded ones, make that call, then you really amp up what they have to do, and they start enjoying it even more. They really will get to, you know, I'm going to take out the ones I can take out. You guys are going to have to, the big one's going to get past me for now, but I'm going to stop you guys from getting hit by two or three other ones because action economy is critical. Uh, So sometimes taking out multiple guys, even if the heaviest hitter gets through, is okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, action economy, the be-all and the end-all, the alpha and the omega of combat in (laughs) D&D 5e. (laughs) Is there, is there anything you guys want to talk about more about the, kind of the, the, the combat space? <laughs> As we say a lot in, uh, in, in our show, Donalo, I think we have, we have beaten this one to death. Let's <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a lot of meat on this bone, but uh, there are very li- few scraps left. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, in which case then... You guys are going to now <laughs> see what my first note was on the topic space. Uh, and I took it in a, in a, in a completely different direction of uh, outer space, obviously, as you would. The space, in, you know, full of stars. Mm-hmm. And my only thought around that was the D&D world, most of them, and again, you can play low magic or high magic or whatnot, but most are going to sit somewhere in the middle of the bell curve, right? There's going to be magic items. You're going to have casters you know unless you're specifically playing low magic kind of a gritty 
realism, then magic's going to be a thing, in quotes, in your universe. I think it's pretty much a given. Now, given that presumption and how powerful some spells are, certainly at medium to high levels, it's, just, it's the same problem I've, people face with, you know, given magic is so prevalent, why are there still injuries? You know, given a level two cleric can cast cure wounds, why is anyone injured ever <laughs> in the world? Right. And I know there's, you know, there's steps you can take to say it costs money and maybe there's only, you know, you know, you make um, parallels to the real world and, you know, maybe clerics, there's only one cleric per state or per county. So, you know, they're usually quite busy and they're usually expensive and, and so on and so on. You can, you can make excuses essentially until the cows come home, however you want. I once just wondered like what the excuses are for basically not having space travel. <laughs> well, I mean, so there used to be, right? In second edition, there was a whole subgenre of D&D called Spelljammer, which mm -hmm. really married the concept of Dungeons and Dragons being set in a high magic world. And so there were wizards that could power ships that could fly through space and go to multiple planets. And we haven't seen that. Uh, if I remember correctly, we didn't see it in 3rd edition, and we certainly didn't see it in 4th or 5th edition. And so mm -hmm. it's it has sort of faded out a little bit. And I wish that they would bring it back, because I remember playing in a Spelljammer game when I was... Oh, I was still in, in high school, so I mean, I was probably 14, 15 years old, tops. Uh, and it really had this very interesting... Uh, this really interesting feel to it. Um, one of the things that we talk a lot about on Tabletop Journeys is not just kind of a, a rules-as-written approach to playing Dungeons & Dragons or other tabletop games, but what inspires us when we're writing worlds or when we're writing plot lines and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, and Lee Wanika and I are both huge fans of, of Star Trek and Star Wars. Mm -hmm. And it's because of that sense of exploration, of that sense of, you know, you're seeing a very, very small part of what is a positively monstrous world or, or universe with so many competing factions and so many competing elements that you cannot possibly conceive of it in, in your um, in your own little situation. And so I, I think maybe that's why it's coming about, is because Spelljammer got really complicated, right? Mm -hmm. like you're dealing with 300 different planets, and all of them have their own governments, and all of them have their own thing. And so maybe that's why it hasn't come back, because mm -hmm. it's really kind of a complicated uh, yeah. scenario to run, to run plot in. And instead, what we're seeing is we're seeing a lot of, uh, a lot of cosmology, right? Uh, we're seeing, like, the rebirth of the Feywild, and mm -hmm. the, the rebirth of Shadowfell, and uh, we're seeing um, all these, these astral planes that are, that are opening up. I was just talking with with somebody um, who was uh, who was running a Gates of the Moon plotline, and he needed he was trying to figure out like what to put in there. I was like, "Well, you got to bring in the Eladrin because they are basically the creatures that come from that world, mm -hmm. and there are twenty five different types of them. So you can you can if you want a combaty one, you can pull a combaty one. If you want a magicy one, you can pull a magicy one. Mm -hmm. like, there are all these variations in there, um, and so I think that's really kind of where they're where they're going instead with Dungeons and Dragons is rather than getting into literal space and, and they're getting more into cosmology and getting yeah. more into, uh, into thought based realms and, and, and stuff like that. Yeah. I think that exploration niche, that exploration need to, to boldly go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is ticked by the planar, the, the, the great, the wheel 
the wheel cosmology, isn't it? Well, of, you yeah. know, the inner and outer planes and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's more of a, a planar exploration rather than yeah. a physical world exploration right. which is i guess a lot more exciting than just the vacuum of space uh <laughs> <laughs> i mean it can be yeah but yeah, even think yeah. of it like some of the products that have come out right so i mean they just released tasha's tasha's got a huge amount of feywild and a huge amount of Shadowfell content in it mm-hmm. what was the big thing that came out right before that it was curse of strahd and so they're dealing with kind of uh, uh shades of ravenloft and shades of those kind of parallel realms where you are both in a place um but but not <laughs> it's gonna sound weird but you're both in a place and not anywhere else at the same time yeah because that place doesn't it kind of exists as a pocket realm outside yeah. of what is normal uh and, and what, is, what is regular yeah that plane doesn't even yeah. have a concept of outer space as we know it right now yeah there's no satellites exactly. or anything it's <laughs> yeah. oh i was gonna say that uh along those lines um you know D's history very early on in first edition had space stuff the first mind flayers were in a module where basically an alien ship crashed uh and the mind flayers were from this alien realm later retconned into being uh this spelljammer world so the mind flayers that we see in the D realm back then were basically people who left the space jammer world and landed on the world that D characters populate and so that that's kind of they were really setting up that cosmology back then, and really put a Planescape feel to it later on. Spelljammer became a separate product, yeah. and a lot of things that we deal with in D and D, beholders, things like that, uh, pretty much anything that's listed as an aberration, effectively mm-hmm. comes from outer space. It's ba- aberration is just another a D and D word for alien. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, and if you look at all the things that are aberrations, generally speaking, you're going to find they don't well define where they're from. They just define that that they're here, um, and, and that's kind of where that the history of all that begins. Hmm. I had an uh, epiphany there. I had a realization while you were talking because I think you mentioned um, Star Trek, and it makes sense now why my brain went to outer space first for my notes here because. Literally yesterday, I started watching The Next Generation on Netflix. <laughs> so suddenly, so all, all the pieces have, have fallen into place, and I've I've incepted myself. Uh... <laughs> I mean, you you mean watching it again, right? Because you've yes, seen yes, it all the way through. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna say because we, we we gotta we gotta let you pause and finish yeah. and then come back. <laughs> Spoilers. You know? <laughs> yeah, no, no. It, it was on TV and stuff when I was younger. It was it was like a it's like a Thursday night or a Sunday yeah. afternoon kind of show um but now it's i think all of next gen yeah. is on uk netflix so uh, yeah it's on us too yeah 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 um, so reliving that a little bit and yeah. that's definitely why my brain immediately went to <laughs> outer space now do you guys get any of uh of star trek discovery and, and the, the new series that's uh that's coming out now oh um quite possibly the name rings a bell um yes i think we do yeah, yeah. uh Watch it, if so, because it's excellent. <laughs> it's really, really good, yeah. There are a lot of divergent opinions about Discovery, but as a Star Trek fan, like, as a young child, my mother used to take me to the student union at Cornell University to watch Star Trek when it was air- when it was airing and rerun. Like, before there were ever conventions, my mom was one of the original Trekkers, wrote letters, mm-hmm. all of that. So this is the world I grew up in, by the way where I've always been a fan, I found specifically this most recent season of Discovery to be probably the most Star Trek-y Star Trek there was. You just have to look at the whole season as though it were one episode of Mm -hmm. the original show. Like, 
it, it, like it's split up, but if you look at it as one episode, it was so true at its core to Star Trek uh, and what it's all about that it was it was it was an epiphany um, once you realize the whole thing. Um, and while there may be different opinions out there in the internet, you know, spoiler alert: the internet has varying opinions. Um, no, no, it doesn't. <laughs> and I refuse to believe that. Um, but, uh, as a fan, I can tell you, I felt wholly supported and loved by the creators of this most recent season. Once I saw where it was going, there was times in the middle where I was a little like, where are they going with this? What's going to happen here? But by time it, all the reveals were done and the, and the, and the uh, season ended, I was like, man, that was satisfying. That was everything I needed Star Trek to be. But you had to look at it as a whole, as opposed to its individual parts. Hmm. I better, I better um, change the subject quickly before I say some Star Trek faux pas and, and put my foot in it because <laughs> I have not come prepared for the uh, <laughs> the, the, the highbrow discussion uh, at all, having been you know one episode through the next generation. Uh, <laughs> well, the the other reason I mentioned kind of outer space is because I I, I saw this is back when I first started playing some you know, theory crafting kind of, is this theoretically possible given the rules in, in fifth edition? And it was basically like given some high level spells, could a couple of wizards make essentially like an ion cannon or effectively the same as like a command and conquer iron cannon. So through teleporting stuff and, you know, changing the mass of stuff, could we teleport this, you know, mountainside kilometers up into the sky and then crash it down and then the dm's just like oh boy uh, <laughs> uh i guess uh <laughs> let me just roll a million d6 for the damage uh <laughs> yeah, I, think you're right. I think with ninth level spells especially those um i think you could absolutely do it um mm-hmm. within the rules uh i mean meteor swarm is is a great place to start from I mean, yeah. how much damage does Meteor Storm do? What would you have to build into it to make Meteor Storm more damage? Are there effects? Is there precedent for magic items that could make that bigger or better than what it starts at? I think the answer is absolutely yes. Hmm. The question is, do you do that? Or maybe it's not at that ninth level spell. Maybe it's the boon that you would grant to a character that goes beyond 20th level. Because while you mm-hmm. don't level anymore... Uh, you can get, with the expanded rules, you know, three extra hit points a, a level or whatever it is per level, and then you can get boons as opposed to feats. So mm-hmm. maybe one of those extra 20, 20th level things is a boon that increases the damage of Meteor Storm uh, or something like that. So I think, I think the possibility is there. Uh, I think as a player character, it doesn't make sense narratively. I don't think the enjoyment level would be there for player characters to do that. However, mm-hmm. if you were to acknowledge that that exists as a DM and say somebody else has already done that work and you're a crew member on said ship, voila. <laughs> now you're now you're chasing the stars on this boat that has the ability to breathe and you're fighting other enemies who've also done it or that are already out there. Um, mm-hmm. and, and now you're hearkening back to some classic 
pulp fiction space stuff. Jules Verne's yep. To the Moon and Back. Uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs' John Carter, Warlord of Mars. The original Buck Rogers novels. All things that I read when I was very young that I hold very close and near and dear to my heart. And I utilize those influences in the games I run. Um, I run a series of one-shots about a boat. And it's just on the, on the sea, right? It's just a normal boat on an ocean doing different things. But the idea is very Star Trek-like, where they do missions or they go to places and visit strange new islands uh, and meet new civilizations uh, in an effort to learn more about the world in which they live in and by way of that learn more about themselves. So, it, it, I mean, space is, is a great thing to play in, a great area to play in, and it offers great new things to look at, but it can also be uh, utilized as a catalyst to run adventures locally, and you're just visiting new, new places. Mm-hmm. And the trip isn't what's important as much as what happens when you get to the location. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like they say something similar about Star Wars that it's a space opera, and you could you could pretty much reskin a lot of Star Wars to to pretty much any other kind of theme or decade, and most beats would hit the same. That that, that I I do quite like that kind of the romanticism of exploring at sea. It harkens back to like you know parts of the Caribbean, uh, Christopher Columbus kind of you know Sea of Thieves level of play. Is. Sinbad the Sailor, all of those. Yeah. Uh, Odysseus and, and the Odyssey. Mm. Uh, uh, I mean, to go back to our, our classic roots, um, you know, what can be better than that? That's exactly what that was. That was them just going to different places doing different things where they explored various aspects of how does this man grow and he doesn't get home until his journey has ended. When he has finally become the man he should have been to begin with, that's when he got home and not a moment before. To kind of circle back, I always loved the, the the one thing I always loved about the Odyssey is his home was Ithaca, where I'm from, and I always go back to that kind of concept where it was very neat for him to go back home to Ithaca, where I started at the end of his journey. Something that I I look forward to at some point. I would love to have a retirement home in my hometown for that exact reason. Hmm. Yeah, that's nice. That's yeah. I, I'd like to see. I'd like to play a game of that. Yeah, that basically the next generation, but you know, pirates at sea. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm probably doing you a huge disservice and talking it down way more than it is. But that that's the image I have for rightly or for wrongly in my head. It's not far off, actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, because the nature of Five E is you need more combats and more interactions. Uh, next generation is largely a much more introspective show than an action-oriented show. While there mm-hmm. are action episodes most of the episodes are not action in nature. Um, they are more philosophical in nature. Mm-hmm. There are other st- Star Trek programs that were more or less action-oriented than the next gen. And, and I take that into consideration when I'm running the game, but you always work within the framework of the game you're playing, uh, which is you need more of the combat, you need more of that encounter structure, so I try to put that in there. But but it's not far off. It is kind of the, the, the roadmap that I've set from, mm-hmm. for, that, for that game. Hmm. Uh, and I, I've also just been thinking that what we were talking about earlier on about the different planes. I think the astral sea is a is a thing which I often see as depicted as basically being space, <laughs> except it's purple rather than black. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I guess that you know to get your space field kicks, it's you know now uh, now we've talked about it is there's 101 ways to do that. And I think when you put the mundanity of space next to say the the, the gith and their eternal war in the astral plane 
you'd probably pick the astral plane over, <laughs> you know, floating aimlessly forever in space. Yeah, and again, I mean, that's that the astral plane is this connection to these great cosmological planes that mm-hmm. they that they're currently dealing with. It's kind of the the highway that runs in between all these various cosmic cities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and be totally linked. <laughs> Yeah, I've recently started reading more and more on the GIF and finding them very interesting. I've not figured out the the hook that I want to use to adding them to my current games, uh, but I find them interesting enough that I'm looking for that hook. Like I want to, um, okay, and because I, I like that that deep history that they have built up for them is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know if I've wrapped my head around the cosmology piece and the space that they occupy well enough where I feel confident running it, but I would be very interested and happy to have somebody run one in one of my games or to even play one in another game or something like that. Certainly a one-shot or Adventure League, that type of thing. A Gith uh, Soul Knife, I think, would be pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> that. To, uh, I think that would be a lot of fun. Though I lean closer towards the Gith Zerai than the Gith Yankee, uh, I yeah. think. Yeah, you, you sound like me in, in that you've it, reading the lore and the fluff, and that's what uh, attracted me to, say, like Warhammer back in the day. I used to be quite heavily into 40k many years ago, and I'd, I'd read the codices just to get all the fluff and the lore and... I thought I was particularly drawn to the Tyranids and the Chaos Space Marines because they had really kind of interesting and unique fluff and stories and all that kind of stuff. And likewise with a couple of the creatures like the Gith in d and I'm like, oh, in the same thought thought process of view of, I want to use this, I just don't know how yet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've got a queue forming to, to, you know, knocking on the door of my campaign of, of creatures being like, yeah, how are you going to fit us in? Because... <laughs> Because we want in, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and we and we know you want us in. Uh, that's where I think uh, situations like Adventure League, when you have opportunities to play, really come in come come into mind. Um, I've got to play test some neat ideas and run characters through a couple different adventures just by playing them in in uh, Adventure League. It's actually how I learned Five E. I came to Five E fairly late. It had been out for like three years before I started playing it, um, mm-hmm. and. I wanted to play. People wanted me to run because I was running another game system. They're like, we want you to run D&D again. And I'm like, well, I have to learn it. And they're like, oh, it's easy. I'm like, eh, not when you want to play at the level I like to play at, right? Yeah. I like to, I have my own belief system and what makes a good game. And if I'm running a game, I have to have a certain level of confidence in that skill. So I had to go learn the game. And I found that eventually it was instrumental in learning that like learning the the rules with space and combat and how things interact and and then pushing the limits of the rules as written to include uh the chandelier and all the other things and Mm. and and then okay so you know your average aldm doesn't like that kind of thing or won't do that because he doesn't know how to get think outside of the text box or the dialogue box but now that i'm going to be homebrewing uh, my campaign world, I can. So I can take that framework that I've now learned and understood and change that or alter that or tweak that so it can include the things that I want to do or that I've always done into this new framework. And um, that's kind of how I learn things. So I learn by doing. And so for me with 5e, my doing happened in, in Adventure League. And now mm. I'm now I'm running and I'm running enough games and I'm uh, with this podcast and working with Josh and 
having the opportunities to talk to other podcasters such as yourself, getting enough uh, where I no longer need Adventure League as much as I used to because I can have great conversations like this and spitball ideas and come up with great techniques and great great plans that mm-hmm. way. Hmm. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's nice. And I, I actually am maybe a future version of yourself because I, I have incorporated the GIF into mine and i'll tell you how they are just for food for thought so the way i understand them is that they are well the gifts are a kind of like galactic kind of peacekeepers to a certain extent not peacekeepers but you know they try and keep everything kind of natural and, and neutral and and whereas the gift the yankee are kind of the warfaring side of that and just want power to for the sake of having power so how i've tried to incorporate that is my players as players often do have found a powerful item a powerful relic of a bygone era so powerful that it's drawn the attention of the gith both sides so what i had was the gith zirai to like appear in front of the party as they're traveling back to home base and be like hey You've got a super powerful item that you have no idea what it does because you're just dumb adventurers and just pick up shiny things and hit, <laughs> hit, hit other people with them. Uh, whereas we're like, you know, centuries old, you know, <laughs> planar intelligences. Just, just, just give it to us because like you don't know what you're doing and you could do something very bad with it. And of course, the players are like, no, we want the shiny sword. It's ours. Go, go away green alien men which of course led to a, a fight that uh, i think the gifts arrive eventually just like plane shifted out of there because like, okay well we don't want to die so we'll just teleport home what the players don't know is that there are there are of course uh also gith yankee who are uh n- not quite as polite shall we say without yeah. spoiling too much for my players when it comes <laughs> to uh trying to get their hands on power so that's that's currently how they sit. It's, it's it's literally an arms race between the two gifts, and it just so happens that the players uh, caught in the middle, <laughs> smack in the middle. Yeah. Oh, that's that's fabulous. <laughs> that's that's not a bad future state at all. And uh, if I end up or when I end up using something along those lines or that framework, I will certainly give you the send up because I really do like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's that's one of my uh, about fifty spinning plates that I am. <laughs> 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 running between to keep keep maintain that uh, angular momentum. <laughs> yeah. So we've talked a lot about in universe space, specifically within you know combat. The, the, the I remember seeing a a photo somebody did where they laid you know in they on, on on some grass they laid some two by fours out of wood and did the five foot square to kind of help people see and visualize what a five foot square is for the sake of combat. I was doing the rounds maybe a year ago. I saw that. Uh, actually, um, I actually looked at that, I want to say, last week again to just kind of re-educate myself as to what that space looks and feels like. And I find myself, oddly, at various times, like if I'm in a waiting room waiting for something, thinking about, well, here's my five-foot combat square. and you know, <laughs> <laughs> Just in case anyone in this waiting room kicks off, I need yeah, to be ready. in case anybody's got a pole if arm, this, yeah. If this line doesn't move in the DMV, something's going to happen here. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Hopefully in Australia, you've not digressed into a Bureau of Motor Vehicles like we have here in the States, and you don't have to deal with that line. And obviously, post-COVID, we're not dealing with lines like that anymore, but it is the bane of our existence here in the States is waiting in the DMV line. (laughs) 
He's also in England. So. <laughs> oh, <they're> England. <laughs> I'm not sure whether to be flattered or insulted. I... <laughs> Go with flattery because that's how it was intended. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Anyway, podcast over. Thanks, guys. <laughs> and we're done here. <laughs> <laughs> no, we 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 are we are fortunate to not have the horrors of the DMV to the extent that I understand uh, you are lucky to to have them. <laughs> uh, all done by post here, um, but uh, oh gosh, I've forgotten what we we're talking about. Oh, uh, we were talking about the five foot squares, and I oh I, yes, I, I of took course, it sideways. Yeah, no, no, no that's, 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 hey, that's the that's the nature of the beast, uh, especially <laughs> with this this episode. Um, so yeah, that that, that was, that's uh, quite an, an interesting visualization to help people kind of really comprehend. Because often I get the question of they want to move their maximum speed, and it's thirty foot, which is kind of an abstraction to a certain extent of the pieces on the board, and you know, it doesn't seem very far. But then when you show people that visualization, it's like, no, hey, 30 foot, when you're getting accosted by, you know, aberrations from space, it's pretty darn far, to be fair. <laughs> yeah. uh, in, in my youth, I was much faster than I am today. Uh-huh. And even in my youth, me to go 30 foot took basically something chasing me. Uh, <laughs> in six seconds, right? Because around yeah. six seconds. Correct. Yeah. In six so seconds. I just 30, don't yeah. move 30 feet in six seconds. And I inherently get that with the space because of my experiences in the real world as well. And mm-hmm. I'm sure Josh has a much better understanding of that uh, having done SCA. Yeah, yeah, very much. I mean, it's it's that that feeling where, you know, you have a, a, a brief gap of time to move from where you are 50 feet away and you're wearing 50 pounds of armor and just desperately hoping that somebody does not try to stop you because then that's going to be a, a challenge that you need to overcome to mm. get to your spot. Uh, yeah, it is, it is a palpably terrifying experience. I bet. Yeah. For, for the, for the uninitiated, what does uh, SCA stand for? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So the SCA is the society for creative anachronisms. Uh, it's basically, it's a medieval recreation organization. And one of the big things that they do is, is, uh, uh, simulated armored combat. So, wow. Okay. Of course that was, that's for the benefit of the listeners. I of course knew sure. what that was. So. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and then in my experience with the military, uh, when I joined and I went to basic training, you know, I was in great shape at the time, and I thought I was in decent shape. I could walk anywhere, do anything, uh, you know, going on a, a 5K uh, walk or hike was fine. But then in the military, you're doing that with 60 pounds of gear, mm-hmm. a seven-pound weapon in your hands, and that's not including ammunition. And then you're walking at 180 steps per minute for five kilometers mm. in uneven territory, uphills, downhills, around things, over obstacles, things like that. And when you put all of those out, any one of those elements is easy. All of those elements and the total duration of time, mm-hmm. I get the exhaustion rules. I understand. I understand that. A short rest will get you a little bit, but not a lot of it. I understand that a long rest is what it takes after a 5K road march and all of those things. You add into there a combat or two, and I get I get what the game is trying to bring to the table. And when I hear players not understand that, like, I should be able to do this, I should be able to do that, I'm like, mm, probably not in the real world. And in a mm-hmm. game sense, 
I think they did a masterful job of simplifying a way to make it clear that even if you're playing superheroes, uh, you got to take a breather. <laughs> yeah, you're still limited by you know biology and physics to a to a certain extent. Yeah, unless someone oh, yeah. slams haste on you. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I mean that that feeling when uh, in in a physical space or you know in again in the air quote real real world when you know that you want to go from point A to point B and your body is is telling you you need to sit down and get some food in you mm-hmm. get some water in you because you know it's it's 110 degrees out and you're foolishly running around in 50 pounds of armor like sit your ass down <laughs> yeah. yeah good luck uh, I, I i watch shows like naked and afraid and things like that um and i think they're awesome and watching a show like that it is very easy to say oh i could do that but then think about that for a moment could you really could you really with no clothes so your feet aren't even protected. Land yourself in the African savanna, hearing lions and cheetah howl at night. Survive for forty days or sixty days. My guess is probably not. Like you'd be tapping out pretty quick. Um, yeah. You know, even the people that tap out after two episodes, which is the equivalent of, you know, a week or three days, they're heroes. They did more than most people are going to do. They certainly did more than I would do because I didn't even go out for the show. You know, <laughs> <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah, I looked at the premise and said no. Yeah, I said this is going to be a good a good watch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> from couch, my couch, couch from, experts. From my couch in my jammies with my hot cocoa <laughs> <laughs> and my shoes. Yeah, <laughs> slippers. Yeah. One thing that we took to about distance in combat, and we all basically agreed that, like, hey, you know, in the in the heat, of the battle thirty foot is pretty decent, decent enough. I was reading recently that. Again, it's it's a bit min maxi. It's a bit you know unlikely to happen that often, but I think it, it's a combination of like if you're a, I think Tabaxi can double their speed or something at some point. So if you combine that with a monk and haste, that was it. Someone someone did a theory crafting on Reddit that basically said what's the theoretically highest speed in in a round someone that we can do with all feats and all items and all spells pushed together like you've seen probably before with the like ac theoretically highest ac is like 35 or something bonkers i think it, i think it was like 415 feet <laughs> yeah it, it's it is quite ridiculous i've seen it done and monk was definitely used i forget what the other class was used it was actually done with a variant human but a youtuber who i follow does D&D versions of superheroes mm. and he did the flash and it was crazy. It was just crazy. Like just the amount of space that this character he created could do was insane. He's also done Sonic the Hedgehog mm. and a few others. And it's like, how in the world is he able to get this done? Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's probably a lot you have to sacrifice to get that level of speed as in like you're probably not running a very well-tuned character in any other area but right no yeah. no no it, they were optimized for a purpose <laughs> yeah, yeah but I'd, I'd i would like to see the grin on my face if i rocked up to a table with, like, with my mates and they're like oh how far can i move in a combat now like, oh 30 oh 20 25 because you know you're a halfling yeah yeah and i'm just there like 120 before i've even <laughs> like attacked it <laughs> yeah. and i'm gonna dash as a bonus action yeah yeah, yeah exactly yeah Cool. Anyway, I'll see you guys in the next city uh, next week. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly.
Yeah. I'll have a room set up for us. Yeah, those kind of characters are excellent for one-shots. And yeah. again, Adventure League is perfect for those types of things. Because you do them, they're fun, they're in the moment, and you don't have to worry about the ongoing tedium of that being the only thing you can do. You know, it's great mm-hmm. if you can move 850 feet or whatever in a single round, but if you move that far to stab somebody for 1d4, it gets real old by the time you're level 6 or 7. <laughs> you know? that uh, that recurring enemy that you were talking about before knows you're the fast guy and makes sure to bring a wizard that can freeze you in time mm-hmm. before yeah. you run around you know yeah which is uh which is an ability the gifts i have i think one of yes. the the higher gifts i can do like a time shift thing yeah to exactly. really put a nice little bow on the <laughs> on that conversation yeah absolutely uh you know it's great when the combat takes place in knee-deep mud <laughs> 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 Good luck. <laughs> Run if you will. <laughs> I don't know why that's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> Just the marsh, like swampland yeah. fighting. Yeah. 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 Uh, so we've talked a lot about, this is what I was getting to about 20 minutes ago, but we're, we're back here now, so it's all, it's all good. Um, in, in universe, space and speed and restrictions and the physicality of the dimensions and whatnot, and we talked a little bit about uh, outer space. And tangentially, we've talked a bit about kind of minis and, and, and combat on the board and, and kind of physical space in the real world. Here's one thing that I thought we could end on to, to really come out of the field was mental space. So what I mean by that is, and this is a, this is a, a laboured attempt to make this have a wholesome end to the podcast. And I wanted to talk a little bit about you know, why do you play essentially, you know, what, what does it, how does it make you feel? You know, do you play to escapism? You know, do you come out the other side being like, Hey, I'm, I'm feeling better. You know, the, the, the woes of today have melted away a little bit. So, you know, what, what do you guys do what you do essentially? So I think that Liwanika and I will agree on this, that at our hearts, we're doing this because we're storytellers because we want to we we have a story in our head that we want to invite friends to participate in and to contribute to you know it that's sort of the core belief behind uh a collaborative world building approach to a homebrew campaign now both of us use D&D 5 as kind of the core rule set behind it but we also play in heavily homebrewed campaigns and Really, I'm asking players to come, see the world that that I've kind of imagined and and experience the things that I've imagined and and play in the scenarios that I'm setting up for you. But I really want that to be a collaborative process. I want them to tell me, you know, when they walk into the city for the first time that their character has never been to, what is it that they see or what is it that draws their attention to? Mm. That sort of thing. And so... I start from the point where I want to tell that story or I want the story to be told. I, I don't want to tell the story as the DM, but I want the story to be told. I want I want I want to know what happens. You know, I want to know how does it play out. Mm. You know, I, I I'm setting up a scenario, but I don't I don't know if they're gonna win at the end. I don't know if they're gonna beat the big bad guy. I, I don't know if they're gonna figure out the mystery or or if the mystery is gonna remain unsolved. You know, that's that's all part of the story for me and I, I'm I'm as curious as they are to go ahead and, and hmm. wait to the end to find out uh, to find out what they did. 
that's where I'm where I'm beginning and why I want this, you know, to to uh, why I'm doing what I'm doing and and why I why I play and why I storytell. Hmm. And to circle around to Josh's uh, statement again, where I start from almost exactly the same point but diverge slightly, I would say the, the same things, but I would add to that that. For me, I approach this in my own headspace as being the vehicle for the story. I'm the car, I'm the wheels or whatever, and I'm going to lay a road out in front of everybody, but the players are steering the direction. The players are choosing where to stop. And I think what it satisfies in me personally is my ability to be creative, to create a new thing, build a new thing, do something that creates excitement and enjoyment for other people mm-hmm. and also to build a community. Um, I come from a very small town uh, and community is very important. I'm still close with kids I was in kindergarten with, hmm. you know, 40 plus years later, I still talk with them regularly on Facebook because we don't live anywhere near each other. Um, mm-hmm. We're all over the country, sometimes the world. And so building that community, the people I went to high school with, I'm still close with uh, in various states and various countries and nations. I have friends all over the world. And I think building a community is part of what fuels my drive to be a storyteller, a DM, and a a creative content person. There's an element of escapism in it. This world has been ugly. Uh, We talked before the podcast that at one point Josh and I talked about doing a political podcast and we decided that's just not fun. That's just, Mm -hmm. it's draining to my soul to do politics on a regular basis. But this isn't. So Escape from some of these real-world things, I think, is an important part. And then the other part is catharsis. If I'm frustrated, even in that political realm, I can find an analog for it in a medieval fantasy and have, you know, an evil ruler who's deposed and all the things that happen as that process goes on and have that be an exciting thing because the heroes are part of getting rid of the evil ruler. Um, mm. Not to get overly political, but I do think <laughs> catharsis is part of it. And I think everybody who's listening to the podcast will probably get what I mean by saying that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so those are big elements for me. That's kind of what I think about. But it all comes right back to being creative and creating that story and wanting to have a story told, me to be a part of it. Like a director of some kind, but not necessarily me sitting around the campfire telling the entire thing. I want to be surprised, too. I want to yep. find out where it's going. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you, guys. Yeah, that's nice to to hear, you know, such genuine and sincere enthusiasm for, you know, the, the creative side of it. And I, I, it's really quite nice to hear that community side of it. And it reminded me of, as I mentioned, I, I DM for you know, colleagues and friends. And it originally started way back when as me, I literally sent an email out to a whole bunch of colleagues at work that I thought would be interested and didn't get a response back for a couple of weeks and was kind of bummed out and just thought, oh, hey, I kind of, you know, I kind of put myself out there a little bit. There's still a bit of a, can be a bit of a negative connotation for D&D in the, in the UK, certainly in, you know, certain demographics. And then to have nothing come back, I was a bit like, oh man, no, no one wants to be my friend anymore. (laughs) (laughs) And then I caught one of them literally like in the kitchen and he's like, oh, hey, Danilo, I saw your email the other day. Uh, yeah, that sounds like fun. What, like, what, what do we do? How, do? how do we start? And oh, yeah. Uh, and funnily enough, another guy called Josh, he, he, he wants to join in too. And it suddenly it went from nobody to like six people. Uh, and I think at the first Christmas that came after we started playing, they bought me a, a dice tower, a little foldable collapsible dice tower. 
as to say you know thanks for bringing us into your hobby bringing us into your world we're having like a, a bunch of fun that we never thought we would so you know you've, you've put yourself out there and this is to say thanks from from all of us at the you know just just before we start a session and i was like oh <laughs> my heart <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's that's, that, awesome. that's wonderful um you know work is a challenging and scary place to talk about this particular hobby i struggled with how i would do that with the podcast and amazingly found great support amongst my coworkers, and it's a new job i just started less than a year ago um so it's a combination of being the new guy and the geek guy mm. and being one of very few guys in my office talking about a hobby which is very largely male-centered uh, mm-hmm. unfortunately um so it was weird putting out like what are you doing it's like you know talk, being excited about the podcast and the feedback I've gotten from my coworkers has been amazing, but it was a little bit slow in getting there. I'm not sure if everybody knew how to approach the discussion, but it's getting there, and it's and it's pretty cool. Yeah, cool. Yeah, ah, good. At my my gambit of ending this podcast on a on a wholesome note has paid off. So, uh, yeah, cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, did 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 anyone uh, have anything we haven't covered yet? Anything specific they wanted to talk about? No. I th- I think we covered yeah, great yeah. ground. It, is, it, it yeah. was an amazing topic that had so many different avenues uh, and spaces to uh, to investigate. And I think we did a, an admirable <laughs> job of it. So many spaces, really. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there, but that, now that is the end of the podcast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> to be uh, fair, uh, Danilo, I, I want to say that, uh, that one of your recent podcasts, somebody said something about low-hanging fruit is their favorite fruit. I yeah. do enjoy the low-hanging fruit. awesome well again i i I know i can't express uh my gratitude enough um that you guys have chosen to spend your afternoons uh recording with me so thank you very much for for joining us today yeah thank you very much for giving us a space to uh to come on here and and uh and talk with you this has been a tremendous amount of fun yeah it has been and i really enjoy everything that we've uh talked about today and look forward to much more of your podcast Oh, awesome. Thank you. Thank you so, so, so much. You don't, uh, you don't appreciate how that, how much that means to me. To those listening at home, thank you for, for joining us on this special bumper episode. And, you know, any comments as usual, you can find us all on Twitter. There'll be all the details in the description. Otherwise, thank you all for listening and good night.